the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. Amen. I know that some of you are familiar with a recent book by Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan titled The Last Week. It's a wonderful study of Holy Week. And in it, they write about something that I find particularly interesting. They talk about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as something that Jesus may have planned in order to draw attention to the two kinds of power and two kinds of authority that was so important for us to see. What they propose is that perhaps, perhaps, Pontius Pilate was coming to Jerusalem from the west just as Jesus was coming down the Mount of Olives and entering Jerusalem from the east. And Jesus comes on a donkey with the crowds yelling and rejoicing and waving the palm fronds giving thanks for the entrance of the Messiah into Jerusalem. And from the other side comes worldly power on war horses. And you can imagine that Pilate was surrounded by many, many soldiers as he came into Jerusalem. He was coming because of his Passover. And they knew that there would be the great possibility of unrest as that city swelled in its numbers. Two parades, they say, they're putting before us. Two choices. Worldly power, power of might, and power of authority that comes perhaps through law. And the other, a very gentle authority and a very gentle power. I think that the church, throughout its history, has struggled with those two kinds of power. And has struggled with the proper relationship between church and state. Uh, in the early church, it was quite clear, was a thorn in the side of the Roman Empire and, and was an affront to Rome because the, perhaps the earliest creed of the Christian church was that Jesus Christ is Lord. And of course, to the emperor in Rome, only the emperor should be Lord. So from the very beginning, the church was set up as opposed to the power in Rome. But then things changed. The fourth century... Constantine became a Christian. The emperor was a Christian and, in effect, put Christianity in place as the state religion. 
And in doing so, Christianity was was really uh, neutered in many ways. It did not have the power that it had before. And then, of course, we know the papacy grew in power and authority and the church itself began to function more like an empire. And that went on for years. And I dare say that there are remnants of that empire yet in place in that kind of way of thinking as an empire. Well, you know the the story of uh, Christian history as well as I am perhaps better. And you know that whenever the church gets too close to the center of power, the church has lost its authority. And in fact, the church loses sight of its mission to proclaim the good news in Christ. That is the church's mission. And unfortunately, for those in power, the good news is not always good news. It's sometimes bad news. And the church has to be willing to preach it, to proclaim it. I think there are many examples of an inappropriate connection of church and state, of religion and patriotism. I've shared with some of you uh, a photo that I saw in a book as I was uh, in a class uh, studying Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That particular book was describing Bonhoeffer's struggle with the state church, with the Lutheran church in Germany, and the one he actually separated from. Now, Bonhoeffer loved his country. You can know that. But he saw things developing that made it impossible for him to continue to be part of a church that was compromised. And in that book is a picture of a Lutheran church in Germany with a Nazi flag uh, draped over the altar like an altar frontal. And I was shocked when I saw it. It took my breath away. I've never seen anything like that. Now, this past week, as I was preparing to preach, I, one of the things I often do is, is surf the Internet and read various blogs and writers on the Internet to see what they're, how they're reacting to the propers of the day. And I came across a blog by a Methodist minister, and it turns out that this particular Sunday in the Methodist church is, the, is appointment Sunday. It's the Sunday when all the new, newly appointed clergy take their posts in their new congregations. And, of course, some of these clergy are fresh out of seminary and are finding themselves on this Sunday, their first Sunday in their new congregation, the 4th of July. And all of the customs that have grown over time in these various churches in how they observe this civic holiday. And one of the things that they talked about on this blog was that it is customary in some Methodist churches for the American flag to be draped over the communion vessels and after the doxology has been sung for the national anthem to be sung. Now, I have nothing against the national anthem, nothing against the American flag, but there's something about that image that I find very discomforting. And I found that these ministers, as they were responding on this blog, were really responding, talking about what is the content of our symbols. What does it mean when we do something like that? I'm sure that many of you recall the phrase, Gott mit uns, God with us, that was inscribed on the belt buckles of some of the German soldiers and others wore it as a patch. The blasphemous phrase, God with us, to think that God could be with any people going into war, that that somehow is God's will. And yet, 
I think that if that same phrase had been on American uniforms, I'm not sure that I would have seen that as blasphemous. So there's something that I have to deal with as well when I think about that, because blasphemy is blasphemy. And when we mix God and country in an inappropriate way, it becomes blasphemous. Now, this is the 4th of July, and I don't want to ruin your Independence Day. (laughs) I'm probably well on the way, unfortunately. But I think this is a great opportunity for us as Christians to step back a bit and to reflect on what it really means to hold love of country and faithful uh, following of Christ in balance with one another. First of all, I think we need to recognize that our church has been wedded to the foundation of this country and its development, especially in in probably the first 200 years, uh, very, very closely wedded with all of that. In fact, over half of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were Episcopalians. And it's very appropriate that our church has... Uh, recognize this civic holiday uh, to be a day of special observance in our church calendar. And so the propers we're using today are the propers for the 4th of July. And I think that it's important for us to see that we do recognize that we are blessed as a nation. We have been blessed as a people. And for that, we give God thanks. It's interesting to me as as I think about uh, church and state and about how we keep those uh, in balance, that from the very beginning, there was a recognition that we were a country made up of people of many faiths. And I want to read to you a portion of a letter from John Adams to his wife, dated September 16, 1774. I quote, Having a leisure moment while the Congress is assembling, I gladly embrace it to write you a line. When the Congress first met, Mr. Cushing made a motion that it should be opened with prayer. It was opposed by Mr. Jay of New York and Mr. Rutledge of South Carolina because we were so divided in religious sentiments. Some Episcopalians, some Quakers, some Anabaptists, some Presbyterians, and some Congregationalists, so that we could not join in the same act of worship. Mr. S. Adams arose and said he he was no bigot and could hear a prayer from a gentleman of piety and virtue who was at the same time a friend of the country. He was a stranger in Philadelphia, but had heard that Mr. Duché deserved that character. And therefore, we moved that Mr. Duché, an Episcopal clergyman, might be desired to read prayers to the Congress tomorrow morning. The motion was seconded and passed in the affirmative, end quote. Mr. Duche was the rector of Christ Church in Philadelphia. Some of you may know that church. And he later uh, became the first chaplain to the Congress. And although we still have chaplains to the Congress, we recognize that we are a nation of many faiths. And we respect and indeed we delight in the fact that we do not have an established religion, that we are able to worship as we choose. And that was won for us by those who fought and died on our behalf so many years ago. But I think that there are two things we really need to hold before us. One is our understanding of who we are in the presence of God. And the second is that we are Americans and that 
That is part of our story, is part of who we are, and we can rejoice in that. Today, we're called to remember that God, our God, is Lord of all. And the reading from Deuteronomy uh, made it very clear. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. Him alone you shall worship. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you those great and awesome things that your own eyes have seen. As Christians, we do not worship a nation. We revere it. We love it. But we don't worship it. We worship God. We must remember that our first allegiance is always to God. And we also should remember that God has pledged allegiance to us in the giving of his only son, his death and his resurrection. We must never forget that we are first gods. We first are children of God. And that is our first allegiance. But this is also a day for us to get all the flags out. As I came to church this morning, one of the lawns had small flags filling the lawn. And I thought, what a delightful thing. How beautiful. What a wonderful way to just express boldly how proud they are to be an American and how thankful they are for the country that we are a part of. We take out the patriotic hymns and we sing them this day. And we give thanks for the freedom that was won for us by those men and women so many years ago. But also in doing that, we must remember those who are serving us yet today in far off lands. Young men and women who are risking their lives, not, not unlike those Minutemen who stood so boldly and with such valor, who lost their lives on our behalf. And no matter what you think about that war, no matter how strongly you feel about it, we must remember that they are there in our name. And they, too, understand what it is to fight for freedom. I believe that's what they believe they are there for. Just as those men and women of old fought for our freedom. And so we celebrate and give thanks for the birth of this great nation. And we remember that we are God's people, first and foremost. May God grant our prayer that our nation may continue to be a light to other nations. That this may be a nation that is looked to as a, a fount of freedom and of liberty. And may God grant that in God's righteousness. And may we experience it in peace. Amen.